0: You know, all three times that we've sung that song this morning in all the services. It's that line, uh, the Father's arms are open wide. Um, I want you to know that this morning. I don't know what your background is that brought you to church today. I don't know if you go to church all the time. I don't know if this is your first time to church in a long time. Maybe your first time in church ever. I want you to know this. When we sing that the, the Father's arms are open wide, what we mean is that our God, the God we believe in, loves sinners And he sent his son Jesus to die in the place of sinners. And he opens his arms with wide open welcoming you to come to him, to have your sins forgiven and to start a relationship with him. And that happens through faith in Jesus. See, when we sing this song, um, you know, come to the altar. uh, You know what an altar was? An altar was a place where sacrifice was made. So, When we sing come to the altar, we don't don't mean come to the front of this church like the altar up here on the stage. We mean come to the place where the sacrifice was made. That's the place, the cross of Calvary where Jesus died. So if you've never had that moment in your life where you've opened up your heart to the altar, the cross, where the Lord Jesus died on the cross in your place to pay for your sins, then you're not saved. But you can be If you'll open your heart and come to the altar and receive the sacrifice that Jesus made at the cross for you, then the Father's arms are open wide for you. I'm glad that we sang that song all three services today, and uh, I hope that just as you know that God's arms are open wide to you, we want to be a church where our arms are open wide to all who come as well. So if you're new with us today, uh, welcome. We're really glad that you're here. Um, If you have your Bible today, I want to invite you to take it now and open it up to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, that's where we're going to be today. And as you're turning there today, um, let me just stop and mention something that I get excited about every year at this time of the year. This is the time of the year where we as a church begin our nominating process for our next round of elders and deacons in the church. Um, The scripture prescribes two offices to provide leadership in the church, the office of elder and the office of deacon. Elders are the pastoral shepherds who oversee the spiritual things in the church and the deacons are the leading servants in the church. They take care and help people meet practical needs. And so in order to serve in one of these two offices, there are certain character criteria that should be in the place in the lives of men who serve in these offices. And so every year we want to remind you of what the scripture says about the character requirements for these offices. We want to ask you to pray uh, that the Lord would bring to your mind men in our church who meet these requirements that the Lord may be calling to serve in these offices. So if, when it comes to serving as an elder, 1 Timothy 3 verses 1 through 7 say, say this. The saying is trustworthy. If anybody aspires to the office of overseer, or that's elder, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace and into a snare of the devil. Those are the character qualifications that we should be looking for in the men that we will nominate to serve as elders in this church. Um, There are similar qualifications for deacons that Paul writes about in the next several verses. Verse 8 of 1 Timothy 3 starts out saying this, deacons likewise must be dignified not double-tongued not addicted to much wine not greedy for dishonest gain they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless Character qualifications that we are looking for, for the men who will serve as elders and deacons in our church. And I wanted to mention those to you today because I want to ask you to think on those passages. Um, meditate on those passages. Because later in this month, you're, if you're a member of our church, you're going to have the opportunity to nominate men to serve as elders and deacons in our church. Um, we need to be nominating biblically qualified men to the best of our knowledge. In the coming weeks, I will be explaining uh, how your nominations are processed and what our vetting um, procedures look like. And so I'll be sharing more about that. But in the meantime, I would just ask you to stay meditating and thinking on these passages from 1 Timothy 3 and be praying about who the Lord would have you nominate to serve. And men in our church, I'll also say this to you. Um, Be praying also for yourself that if the church nominates you and you are asked to serve, If the Lord is putting it on your heart to say yes to that, then I trust that you will. It's a great privilege to serve in the Lord in this way in his body. And so uh, I'm looking forward to seeing who God raises up. Um, That being said, today we're going to jump back into our study through the book of Acts. Uh, You guys, it was one year ago. It was this time of 2022 when we started our journey through the book of Acts. Here we are a year later, you know. I mean, it's crazy. You know, we took a break from the book of Acts. Um, through the holidays, you know, for uh, some topical sermon series there. But um, that first half of the book of Acts, chapters 1 through 15, man, we covered that last year. And there are, there is so much there, so much that we need to remember as we get ready to jump into the second half of the book of Acts uh, now this year. So um, what I wanted to do today is I want to take just a, a few minutes to summarize Um, really that that first half of the book of Acts that we went through last year. So I'm going to take about 10 minutes to do that. I know that for some of you, you're like, got it, Jason. We spent a whole year in this. Others of you are like, you know what? I'm new to this church. I haven't really studied the book of Acts before. This will be a helpful kind of summary um, launch pad for you as we get ready to jump into Acts 16. But the first thing that we need to remember about the book of Acts is that it's actually a continuance from the book of Luke in your Bible. So the third book in your New Testament is the Gospel of Luke. It's all about the life of Jesus. Uh, Luke writes about the ministry of Jesus leading up to his death, his burial, and then his resurrection. And then um, Luke, the, the writer of that gospel, is the same author of the book of Acts. And so when he writes Acts, he just picks up where Luke left off. You know, He, he starts uh, jumping into Acts where it talks about Jesus um, after his resurrection, commissioning the disciples out on their mission to take the gospel to the world. Before Jesus ascends to heaven, he promises that he's going to send his holy spirit to come on his apostles, give them power to be his witnesses in the world, and he says you're going to be my witnesses in three key areas: in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And that word from Jesus in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 really gives us an outline of the entire book of Acts. So let me just kind of overview with you the outline of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1 through 7 is really about the apostles' ministry in Jerusalem. Acts chapters 8 through 12 uh, have to do with their ministry in the regions around Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria. And then Acts chapter 13 through 28 are about the gospel going out from the Jewish regions and into the Gentile world through, mainly through, the missionary journeys of the apostle Paul. And so let's take a minute and just kind of walk through each of these sections, all right? So section 1 is the ministry in Jerusalem, chapters 1 through 7. Summarizing all of that, let's remember. The first thing that we need to remember about ministry in Jerusalem is this. It's Pentecost, right? When we get to Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falls on the apostles. They start preaching with great power, and people are saved. At that point, the church begins to form, Remember, up until this point in Acts chapter 2, there really was no church, right? There were God's people, Israel, all through the Old Testament. There were believers, disciples following Jesus and the Gospels. But here in Acts chapter 2, in the day of Pentecost and the subsequent events, the church starts to form. And so uh, as the church forms within Jerusalem, the apostles start to gain popularity. They start to have fame and recognition because they're doing miracles and they're doing mighty works in Jesus' name. And this leads to the Jewish religious leaders getting really jealous and frustrated and they start to imprison people like the apostle Peter and, and others. And so God works miracles, delivers them from their imprisonment, um, the, these stories and these mighty works of God lead to many more people believing the gospel and joining the church. So many people join the church that the apostles can't care for them all and meet all their needs anymore. And so they appoint deacons to help assist with those needs. Um, one of those first deacons is a man named Stephen who is, ends up being killed for his ministry as a deacon in the church, caring for people, helping spread the gospel. And so deacons, uh, Stephen's martyrdom ended up leading to a great persecution that uh, started happening within the church in Jerusalem. Um, That persecution of the church in Jerusalem was mainly led by a guy named Saul of Tarsus, uh, a man, a Jewish man from Jerusalem. Um, He began persecuting the church, and that led to a bunch of Christians in Jerusalem fleeing and going elsewhere. So that's the ministry in Jerusalem, chapters 1 through 7. From here, the gospel goes out from Jerusalem out to the surrounding regions of Judea and Samaria. And the gospel goes forward mainly through the lives of three men, Philip the Evangelist, Saul of Tarsus, and the Apostle Peter. So each, you know, chapters of the book of Acts start to fill us in on the lives of these guys. So Acts chapter 8 tells us about Philip the Evangelist. Philip takes the gospel north to Samaria Then he goes south down towards Egypt and leads an Ethiopian man to Christ. Then he goes kind of west over towards the the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, and he preaches along the coastal cities of the Mediterranean Sea, and so the gospel is going out. From there, in Acts chapter 9, we meet a man, again, Saul of Tarsus. We hear more of his story. Remember, he's the guy who's been persecuting the church. He decides... He's not happy that these Christians fled Jerusalem and went north to the region of Samaria. So he decides he's going to hunt them down and he decides he's going to track them down to the city of Damascus. On his road to Damascus, he has a supernatural encounter with God and the Lord Jesus saves Saul of Tarsus and he converts and becomes a Christian. He starts traveling at that point around and going to try to find other Christians and say, hey, I I know I used to kill you guys and imprison you, but you know what? I'm one of you now. And so you can imagine him showing up in churches in that time being like, hey, I'm saved now. And everyone's like, eh, hey, I don't know about this. So he needed some people to vouch for his credibility. So one of the leaders in the church was a man named Barnabas. Barnabas ended up taking Saul of Tarsus under his wing, and they actually became ministry partners together. Barnabas befriended him, they had ministry. The church grew. That leads us up to Acts chapter 10 and 11. In Acts chapter 10 and 11, talk about how the gospel advanced through the apostle Peter. In Acts chapter 10 and 11, Peter ends up meeting a man named Cornelius, and Cornelius becomes a Christian along with his whole family. The big thing about Cornelius is that Cornelius is the first convert to Christianity who was not a Jew. Peter witnesses to him. He receives the gospel. It says that the Holy Spirit came upon Cornelius and his whole household. And this was amazing, right? So Peter goes and he, and he goes back to Jerusalem and he starts to tell the Jewish Christians, hey, guess what? This, this non-Jewish guy named Cornelius became a Christian and the Holy Spirit came upon him and, and the people are amazed in Jerusalem because remember up until that point, the only people who uh, the Jews believed could become God's people were Jews. And so now we have Gentiles that are receiving the Holy Spirit and being saved and um, the church is thrilled about this and the gospel goes forward and more and more people are reached. Till you get to um, Acts chapter 12 where we hear about the Jewish king named Herod Agrippa. Herod Agrippa was so jealous and concerned about the spread of Christianity that he wanted to just squelch it. And so he decided he was going to kill the leaders. He uh, put James the apostle to death by the sword. He imprisoned Peter the apostle and intended to kill him as well. But God worked a mighty miracle and released Peter from prison. And after that, King Herod ended up dying and his body was eaten by worms. Right, so that gets people's attention. Mighty fear came upon the crowds. More people believed in the God of the apostles and the person, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the gospel continues to grow. That summarizes chapters 8 through 12 when the gospel goes out from Jerusalem and into the regions of Judea and Samaria, which those regions, again, were mainly Jewish regions. People there that were mainly getting saved were Jews. But that leads us to the final section of the book of Acts where the gospel goes out to the Gentile world, right? To the ends of the earth. Acts chapter 13 we, if you recall our study last year, we realized that the church had moved its headquarters from Jerusalem, they moved it north to Antioch in Syria. Remember, persecution drove many of the Christians out of Jerusalem. So now they set up a new headquarters in Antioch of Syria. And out of Antioch, Syria, the church sends its first missionaries ever. The Apostle Paul and his buddy Barnabas. And they go on their first missionary journey out into the Gentile world. They travel across the Mediterranean Sea over to the island of Cyprus. They preach there, start many churches. Then they go up north to what we would now call the the area of Turkey. They preach there, many cities, churches are started. And then they kind of follow their route back and they return home. Um, And that wraps up their first missionary journey. When we get to Acts chapter 15... Paul and Barnabas are home from their first missionary journey. They're at Antioch of Syria. And when they get back, a big debate starts to happen. Because when they get back, they're telling the stories. Look at all these Gentile people in Cyprus and the region that we would call Turkey. Look at all these Gentile people becoming saved and becoming God's people. And some of the people who had a Jewish background were coming into the church saying, wait a minute, the, all these Gentile people that are now believing the gospel, they all now need to... They need to to become um, uh, Jews. They need to take on our Jewish customs. Specifically, these men who are converting, they need to be circumcised. And there becomes a big debate in the church. Some are saying, no, they don't need to be circumcised to be saved. Others are saying, yes, they do. It turns into this big issue that they can't settle in the church of Antioch. So they say, you know what? We We need the apostles who are still living down in Jerusalem to settle this for us. And so there's this big meeting down in Jerusalem with the apostles that's called the uh, Jerusalem Council. And in the Jerusalem Council, they bring a, a couple conclusions. And the conclusions that are made there are this. First, no, the Gentiles do not need to add Jewish works like circumcision to their faith in Jesus in order to be saved. Because we just sang it, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That was the first conclusion from the Jerusalem Council. The second conclusion was, yes, these new Gentile converts do need to be considerate of the things that are offensive to Jews because that is how we will foster a a, a maintenance of Christian fellowship in the church. And so those were the two conclusions. After that was settled the Apostle Paul and uh, Barnabas took that message back up to the church in Antioch, Syria. They stayed in that area preaching for a while, but eventually they said, hey, remember all those churches that that we started on our first missionary journey? Let's go back and visit them. Let's see how they're doing. And so they decide they're going to go back, and they're like, all right, who are we going to take with us? And that leads to another big problem, because Barnabas wants to take a guy named John Mark with them. And John Mark is a guy who bailed on them on their first missionary journey. He was with them at first, but then he quit. So Barnabas has a gracious spirit. Uh, John Mark is also Barnabas's cousin, so he kind of wants to give a second chance to his family member. And he's he's saying, "Come on, let's bring John Mark." The Apostle Paul is like, "No, not doing that. We've already learned that lesson. We're not repeating that error, right?" And so what ends up happening is they have a great split. Um, They agree to disagree. And Barnabas says, well, I believe the Lord's calling me to take John Mark. And so they leave and they go over to Cyprus and minister to the churches there. Paul takes a man named Silas and decides he's going to head out on his second missionary journey going north, up and around the edge of the Mediterranean Sea and over to the region that we would now call Turkey. And that's where we left off in Acts chapter 15. Now that's a lot of backstory, and I flew through that and I'm glad that some of you are still awake. So praise the Lord. Um, but what I want to do now is I want to pick up in Acts chapter 16. Today we're going to work our way simply through the first five verses. I'm going to make a handful of teaching points along the way as we go through these five verses. And in the end, I just want to make two applications for us that both tie into the big idea of this text. And the big idea of this passage is this. It's that people who have been made free by the truth of the gospel are willing to give up freedoms for the sake of the gospel. I want you to hear me on that. People who have been made free by the truth of the gospel are willing to give up freedoms for the sake of the gospel. That's what we're going to see as we look at this text. So let's work through it. Let's look at verse 1 together. Verse 1 right away starts out with the setting. It says, Paul came also to Derby and Lystra. Remember, Paul is taking Silas with him, and he's going back to visit the churches that he ministered to on his first missionary journey. So let's put the little map up on the screen and remember the route that Paul took on his first missionary journey. You can see Antioch, the headquarters city off to the right. Remember, Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey went to Cyprus, then they went up north to the region of Turkey and they preached there. And you can see that there are the cities of Derby and Lystra there. Now, I don't know if you'll remember this, but on the first missionary journey, here's what happened when Paul preached in Lystra. There was a man in Lystra who had been crippled from birth. Through the Apostle Paul's ministry, God healed that man. The people were amazed and they started to actually fall down and worship the Apostle Paul. And they were like, you're one of the Greek gods. You're Hermes, right? And the Apostle Paul's like, whoa, don't do that. Like, don't worship me. And through a series of events, the people end up getting turned against the Apostle Paul. And they take him outside of the city and they start to stone him to death. They're hurling rocks at him until the point that they think he's dead outside the city. In a miraculous way, God raised him, you know, up and, and healed him. And Paul got up the next day and went to the next city to preach. So he preached in uh, Derby. And then after he got done preaching in Derby, you know, what's on his mind? You know, hey, hey, Barnabas, where are we going to go preach next? Oh, I don't know. Let's go back to Lystra where we just got almost stoned to death. Right? So they go back to Lystra and they preach again. And people are saved and the church grows. Okay? So that's Lystra on Paul's first missionary journey. Well, now on his second missionary journey, he's going there but by a different route. Okay? So this is the second missionary journey. He's got Silas with him. He goes up around the edge of the Mediterranean Sea and turns the corner and goes into Lystra. And it's in this return to this risky city, you know, where he almost got killed before. You know, you'd think on a second missionary journey, he might be like, I don't know, maybe we should kind of skip that place this time around. He decides they're going back again. And it's this risky return to that city that leads to something that greatly impacts the future of the church. It says in Acts 16, verse 1 and 2, here's what it says. That in Derbe and Lystra, a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek, and he was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. So it it mentions this man, Timothy, who was there in Lystra. Guys, this is the same Timothy that we're going to read about in the remainder of the New Testament. This is the, the Timothy that becomes the Apostle Paul's traveling ministry partner. He ends up uh, being sent by Paul to start churches and lead churches and advise churches all around um, that, that region. Um, this is the same Timothy to whom the Apostle Paul would write the New Testament letters of First and Second Timothy. So we see that even before Paul connected with Timothy here in Lystra, You see that Timothy had a good reputation, right? Isn't that what verse 2 says? He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. The brothers here is very likely a reference to the elders in the churches in Lystra and Iconium. The deacons, perhaps, that were there. The leaders in the church could look at this young man, Timothy, and say, you know what? This is a godly young man. Wouldn't it be great if the leaders of our church would look at some young men in this church and say, you know what? That's a godly young man. Those are godly young men in our student ministry. These are the next round, the next generation, like we just prayed for. The next generation of godly young men are being raised up. This is what they were saying about Timothy. He has a, got a good reputation. They think highly of him. No doubt, Timothy's good reputation in the church had to do with his faithful mother who was raising him. She was a believer, the scripture says. We find out um, in Paul's other letters that her name is Eunice, and what we kind of can piece together is it's very likely that Eunice came to Christ, came, become a Christian on Paul's first missionary journey when he preached and got almost stoned to death and then came back and preached again. And it's very likely that, that Eunice came to believe in Jesus as the Messiah through Paul's ministry there. You know, now some maybe two years or so have passed by and for those two years, Eunice has been raising her son, Timothy, to become a believer. He becomes a believer, and she, we find out in other scriptures, she taught him the Bible. She taught him the scriptures. Notice, you know, that, that that's Timothy's mother. But notice that it also has some words to say about Timothy's father. Verse 2 also says that, uh, or excuse me, his, verse 1 says that his father was a Greek. Now, the writer says that about his father in order to make a point. And the point that the writer is making is that there's a contrast between Timothy's mother and father. Timothy's mother was a believer. His father wasn't. His dad was a Greek, a Gentile. He, he was a, a guy who had no affiliation with the God of Israel. So here we meet Timothy. And what is he, guys? Timothy is a young disciple of Jesus with a Christian mother and an unbelieving father. So single moms in this room or moms in this room who have unbelieving husbands, take heart. Take heart. Know this. God can raise up strong Christian children from homes where there's not a strong Christian father. Some of you ladies in this room, you may be longing for a godly, godly man in your life. You may have a husband, but maybe he's not walking with the Lord at all, or maybe he's just not a a Christian leader in your home. Your longing for your husband to be a strong Christian leader is absolutely right. And he should be a godly leader. And we want to pray for that alongside of you. But the encouragement from God's word here is this. Even if he's not, God can still work in and through your children to make an incredible impact for the kingdom like Timothy is about to do. So raise that young boy. Raise that young girl to know the Lord. Because you just, you never know. You never know. The Lord may just call your son or daughter to be the next Christian missionary. You never know what the Lord is going to do. I also want to speak in this room right now to some of the young men in this church who you were raised without a strong Christian father. Maybe mama taught you the scriptures. Maybe grandma loved you and took you to church. Maybe you had faithful mom or grandparents, but you did not have a faithful Christian father. I want to say to you, you know what? The scripture is going to teach us here. You're going to see there's still hope for you. God What did God do for Timothy here? He didn't have a believing dad. So you know what God did? God brought him a spiritual father. He brought him the Apostle Paul. And for some of you in this room, you you long for that, that spiritual father figure. So pray. Pray that the Lord would bring you an Apostle Paul type person. Ask for that. And when God brings you a godly mature man to walk alongside you, to mentor you, to teach you, praise God for that relationship because that's a gift. That's a gift. And what that means for the older generation in our church is this. Older generation of believers. Some of you have been believers for decades. Some of you are in the fourth quarter of life. And, you know, you're kind of, you've got some experience behind you. You've got some Bible knowledge. The Lord doesn't have you on this planet to just rest on your way to heaven. He wants you to pour your life into the younger generation that desperately needs to be trained in the gospel. Not just the Bible knowledge, right? But they need to see people who have lived it out for decades. So older generation, be ready to invest your life in the younger generation. That's what we see the Apostle Paul doing here in the book of Acts. Look at verse 3 with me. Acts 16.3 says that Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. Just that simple statement is a noteworthy point. Because remember, on Paul's first missionary journey, he had a different young man with him. Paul had John Mark with him. John Mark bailed out. Went home. Now Paul's on a second missionary journey. He doesn't have a young man. But God has one waiting for him. This young man named Timothy in the city of Lystra. And so Paul chooses Timothy to accompany him. And for the next three years, Paul and Timothy are going to travel together on this second missionary journey. You can see how they would become so close doing ministry in that uh, capacity for three years straight. You know, they become very close. over the, In the course of the New Testament, Paul talks about Timothy. He writes about Timothy 20 different times. He he calls him my son in the faith. In the book of Philippians, Paul says about Timothy, I have no one like-minded like him. He had had trained Timothy and brought him up to the point where they were were like-minded in ministry. Eventually, Paul commissioned him out to be a ministry and apostolic representative to other churches. So Timothy learned ministry from the apostle Paul. You ever heard somebody say, you know, something is caught, not just taught? Isn't that the way it is with Christian ministry? Isn't that the way it is with development in the Christian life? It's just as much caught as it is taught. Yes, teaching and instruction and doctrine and learning are absolutely crucial. But you know what else is crucial? Young people growing up seeing older people who actually believe what they say they believe. And we need the older generation investing in the younger generation, the younger generation being humble enough to learn from the older generation. And we see that generational discipleship. There's an, um, a pastor who went to be with the Lord years ago named Howard Hendricks. Howard Hendricks used to say that every Christian needs three other types of Christians in their life. Every Christian needs a Paul, every Christian needs a Barnabas, and every Christian needs a Timothy. Every Christian needs someone in front of you, somebody alongside you, somebody behind you. Somebody that you learn from, somebody that you grow with, and somebody to train up. So that's the question. I mean, this is a basic principle. This is discipleship. Who's your Paul? Who's your Barnabas? Who's your Timothy? If we want to be a church that makes disciples, don't you think we could make some headway? If all, if everybody in this room had those types of relationships in our life, if we all had a Paul, Barnabas, and a Timothy, discipleship would be happening, right? And this is the biblical principle that we see here. So think on that, pray on that, consider your own life. Paul took Timothy and trained him. Back to verse three, it says, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. So catch what's going on right here. Paul and Timothy are traveling to these Churches that are in these cities, and as they go, they're delivering to them the decisions that were made at the Jerusalem Council. Remember, that's the Jerusalem Council. The the, the big debate was going on there, and the big debate was over hey, do these Gentile converts need to become circumcised in order to be real Christians? Paul was saying, no, they didn't. Other people were saying, yes, they did. The elders in Jerusalem concluded and said, no, they don't need to be circumcised in order to be Christians. Yet, in verse 3, Paul is traveling with Timothy, and what does Paul do to Timothy? He circumcised him. What's up with that, guys? Like, when you read that, you catch that, like, what's going on there? I thought, you're delivering the message that says you don't have to do it, and yet, you're doing it. So, what's going on here? Timothy, why would you go through that pain? What's the reason? Well, verse 3 actually tells us what's going on. Verse 3 tells us that Timothy circum- Paul circumcised Timothy because of the Jews that were in those places. So, you have to understand Paul's method of evangelism. When Paul would share the gospel, he would go into a city and he would first initially go straight into the synagogues and preach the gospels to the Jews. They would go into those those places of worship. And then after preaching to the Jews there, then he would go out into the cities and preach to the Gentiles. Here's the thing. If you tried to take an uncircumcised Gentile into a Jewish house of worship, that's a big problem. It's a big problem for the Jews. It's actually such a big problem that it actually became a life or death issue. Now, you may think I'm being extreme or dramatic, but all you need to do is read forward in the book of Acts, And you get to Acts chapter 21 where the Apostle Paul is traveling and he wants to go into Jerusalem to preach the the gospel to the Jews there. And when he gets there, he gets accused of bringing his uncircumcised missionary partners into the Jewish temple. And it's not just some small offense that, you know, some Jews are offended by. So they try to kick him out of the city or rebuke him or something. You know what they did? They actually tried to kill him. And they were about to kill him. Until a group of Roman guards step in and stop the murder from happening. And we'll get to all that in our study through the book of Acts. But uncircumcised people being around Jews and their places of worship in particular, it created a major barrier to sharing the gospel. And here's the thing. What did we just learn? People knew that Timothy's father was a Greek. Which means they knew Timothy's father would have had no motivation to circumcise him. He wasn't a Jew. He didn't care about that. So there's they would have all been, everywhere Timothy went, he would have been suspicious, you know, that that, uh, he was an uncircumcised guy trying to go into all these synagogues and houses of worship with Paul. And so why was Timothy circumcised? He was circumcised by Paul in order to remove a barrier for sharing the gospel with the Jews. Because what is the point of this text? The point of this text is that people who have been freed by the truth of the gospel will give up freedoms for the sake of the gospel. The Apostle Paul would later write his letter to the church in a Corinth, and he would talk about it this way. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19 through 23. Paul writes this, For though I am free from all people, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may gain more. To the Jews I became as a Jew so that I might gain Jews. To those who are under the law I became as one under the law, though not being under the law myself, so that I might gain those who are under the law. To those who are without the law I became as one without the law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ. Why? So that I might gain those who are without the law. To the weak I became weak so that I might gain the weak. I have become all things to all people so that I May, by all means, what? Save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Paul is saying, like, in order to share the gospel with people, he would make great sacrifices for the gospel. He would do hard things, sacrificial things, painful things, circumcision things, right? He was willing, Timothy's willing to do the exact same thing because what's the main point of our text? People who have been freed by the truth of the gospel are willing to give up their freedoms for the sake of the gospel. Timothy understood this. Timothy understood that he was free from the burden of circumcision. He knew that he didn't have to be circumcised in order to be saved. He knew that other people didn't need to be circumcised in order to be saved. But you know what he wanted? He wanted people to be saved. And he knew that until that barrier was removed, he would have very limited opportunity to share the gospel with the Jews, so he got it, he was able to be circumcised. And he did it for the sake of gospel advance. Guys, that is the principle from this text. And when sacrifices like that are made for the sake of the gospel, it's amazing to see what God does. Look what verse 5 says that God did. It says, you know, So Paul and Timothy, they go start to to preach and it says this, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. God was blessing their ministry. God blessed as they made sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. So I wanna end with two specific practical takeaways for us today. How does this main principle tie into us today? Here it is. First one, church family ask the lord to give you the heart of jesus that engages the lost with the gospel ask for the heart of jesus to engage the lost with the gospel i know this sounds about as simple as it can be but the lord jesus cares for the lost he came to seek and to save that which was lost the lord jesus cares the reason why I'm mentioning this is because I think in our modern culture, our modern church culture, it is so easy for us to get just so caught up with our family lives and our church lives that we forget about the lives of lost people. And yes, I want us to deeply invest in our families. And yes, I want us to experience the Koinonia fellowship of the church, desperately want us to experience that. But also, as we grow with the heart of Christ, the heart of Christ that cared for the lost, when we grow with Jesus' heart, we're going to share in the care for the lost. So I want to challenge you with something. What might be the names of a handful of lost people that you want to pray for in 2023? Who are some lost people that you're saying, Lord, give me an opportunity to share the gospel this year? We had a conversation about this with our staff this past week. Our staff has all identified a handful of people that don't know the Lord that we're praying for. And I just very simply want to ask you, would you as our church family like join in us with that? Would you say, Lord, just open my heart? Who, who are some lost people? Ask the Lord to open your heart to care for the lost. And if we're growing with a heart of care for the lost like Jesus, then here's the second takeaway for us be willing to give up freedoms for the sake of sharing the gospel with them. If the Lord opens up your heart for the lost and you start to have opportunity to be able to reach into their lives with the gospel, be willing to give up some of your freedoms in order to share the gospel with them. And when I talk about giving things up here, I'm not not talking about compromising on the essentials of our faith. I'm not talking about compromising. I'm talking about be willing to give up some of what I'll just call the non-essential freedoms. Because that's what Jesus did. Jesus gave up all the glories and the perfections of heaven, and He took on flesh. And he came here and incarnated and he he gave all those perfections up. He gave up all those conveniences and he became very inconvenienced and came here and gave up his life for lost people like me and you. So what does that mean for us? When we're following the heart of Jesus, we will be willing to give up conveniences and eases and, and, and the easy parts of our lives. We'll be willing to give those up for the sake of getting the gospel to lost people. There was nothing convenient about Timothy, this young man, getting circumcised for the sake of gospel proclamation but it was non-essential to the Christian life so he gave it up if there comes a time when you have to choose between keeping or releasing something that's non-essential for your Christian faith yet it could releasing it could open a door for you to share the gospel with the lost guys release it it'll be 100% worth the sacrifice we need people in this church who are willing to give up their freedoms for the sake of gospel advance. We need leaders in this church who are willing to go out and plant churches and start churches and give up conveniences for the sake of reaching lost people in new areas. We need people who are willing to give up the comforts of America and some of our nice life here and because God is calling you to the mission field somewhere else. We should be willing to give up any non-essential for the sake of removing barriers to the gospel. And when we do, perhaps God will do for us again what he did for the disciples in the book of Acts then. Maybe once again, we will see churches strengthened. Maybe once again, we will see them increase in number daily. May God make it so when he makes us people who because of the truth of the gospel are willing to give up our freedoms for the sake of the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, We are um, indeed recipients of the wonderful gift of salvation in Christ. We thank you for someone in our lives who cared and proclaimed the gospel and shared it with us. And thank you that you opened our eyes to receive it. So Lord, for all of us who are believers here today, we just stop for a minute to say that we are thankful that you care for the lost, that you care for us. Thank you, Lord, that you cared for me. And Lord, I pray for each of us in this room now that, yes, we would grow in our love for the church. Yes, we would grow in our love for the families. But Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts up to the lost people who are in our lives. Put faces in our minds now. Put names on our hearts for people that we can pray for. And Lord, when you give the opportunity, I pray that we would walk through the doors that you open to be able to share the gospel. And Lord, if there are things that we can give up in our lives in order to see those gospel doors open, would you show us what those would be? Sometimes it's hard to let go of those conveniences and things we're used to. But Lord, I pray that you would, by your grace, give us the faith and the love for you and the care for the lost to be able to make a sacrifice for the sake of people coming to know you. Lord, as we continue on our journey through the book of Acts this year, I ask, Lord, that you would save lost people, the ones we're thinking about right now, the ones who have never stepped foot in this church, but Lord, would you also save lost people who are here every week? Lord, I pray that through this year, you might put it on some people's hearts to become church planters, taking the gospel out of UBC and, and starting it somewhere else. Might you raise up missionaries to leave our church and go to some other part of the world that you're calling them. Lord, make us a church that shares your heart for those who don't know you. We need to grow in that area, Lord. So we ask you to grow us in Jesus' name, amen.